Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. All righty, guys. Today, we're diving into a spicy one. We are getting into neurodiversity, trauma-informed, ABA, and what has contributed to what might be the greatest divide in clinical history. I may be entirely dramatic here, but it's worth mentioning that there is a tremendous amount of friction that has developed between the neurodiversity movement and ABA itself, probably because the principles within each are contradictory in a lot of ways and our ideas of what ABA is and what neurodiversity is are constantly changing seemingly by the hour. So we're going to dive right into the neurodiversity movement itself and how it even started. The neurodiversity movement actually started in the 90s in an attempt to create a community for people that had an autism diagnosis. And I don't believe it even was a related diagnosis at that point because they were facing a stigma. They were facing a lot of limitations and restrictions because of their disability. And they found that when they kind of banded together and created these advocacy groups, it was easier for them to not only express their opinions and express their voices, but actually form some regulation around allowing these people into more regular pieces of society. So it started off with great intentions, as most movements do. One of the core pieces of the neurodiversity movement was the fact that or the assertion that autism was something that was a valid way of existing. That was something, it wasn't an illness or a sickness or an ailment that needed to be fixed or changed. It was just something that they embraced and kind of brought on as a really unique piece of their personality. Now, where this starts to get a little bit convoluted is as the neurodiversity movement evolved, there was more attention placed on the fact that we are not even calling ourselves valid as autistic people anymore. Our diagnosis isn't necessarily valid. That doesn't give it enough credit. It is a gift. It is not a disability. And Again, something that started off incredibly well-intentioned because of a history of being stigmatized for a disability. Of course, there, who wouldn't want to feel affirmed in some way for having something that they didn't necessarily ask for or develop? They were just born with this neurological disability. But herein lies the problem with the obsession uh, with pretending that these things aren't disabilities, but they're gifts, is that if we're going to call it a gift rather than a disability, then why provide ABA services? Why have accommodations for the neurodiversity movement or people with autism or anybody with any disability or special need? 
And now we're seeing that special needs has become a demonized term because of its derogatory or offensive nature. And when we try to figure out why these terms that we use to help us develop treatment for these people, why they're gaining such a horrendous reputation, a lot of it has to do with the the reputation that that ABA has because of its poor practices in the past. But if we really take a look first at the difference between gift and the difference between disability, it's very obvious that in the literal definition of disability, it states that there are limitations to someone's physical, mental, neurological, or cognitive health. And that's not meant to be a derogatory statement. It is a fact so that we can develop treatment that is aimed at building the deficits that contribute to a limitation. And when we turn a disability into something that's a gift and limitations are no longer seen as limitations, again, we're really shutting off any, any attempt at learning more about our disability, learning new skills, and creating a life that's more meaningful. Because we already have the gift, right? If if this is something that isn't limiting us in any way, then of course there would be no need to change it or even learn how to better adapt with it or evolve with it. And I compare this to someone that has a, a, a terminal diagnosis. If I were told Uh, If I was feeling a little off and I went to get a physical or just a checkup and the doctor gave me a terminal diagnosis and said, what we have found is something that is terminal. And I want to know how bad is it? What does the prognosis look like? And if I was met with a doctor that said something like, well, Kayla, we don't really actually look at the severity of the illness. We don't see it as something that necessarily needs to be seen as a limitation or a problem. Consider it a strength. Consider this a life-altering moment for you. Consider this a gift. I would not feel any better about my terminal diagnosis. Now, some might say, Kayla, autism is not terminal or a disability is not always terminal. So in that sense, I would agree with you. That's a fair point. There are different outcomes between autism and a terminal illness or a neurological disorder and um, cancer, for example. But the, the diagnosis piece remains the same. And one of another core principle of neurodiversity is that functioning labels are not allowed to be used because they're considered something that's offensive or derogatory or that further takes away from the uniqueness or these gifts that people believe they have within their diagnosis. And when we take away a functioning label, we take away our ability to properly treat wherever whatever skills the person hasn't developed yet or is struggling with. And so when when kids go to a diagnostic practitioner to first get a diagnosis, I'm not sure if they are still uh, giving out level one, level two, level three diagnoses anymore because of this movement and because of the backlash that a lot of people have received for 
referring to a functioning label of any kind. But level one, it, it says within it that very little support is needed. And level three states that there are severe deficits and immense challenges. It literally states in the definition of level three, someone who is assigned a level three diagnosis of autism, that it is severe. And so when we say things like low functioning versus high functioning, of course, if it is used in a derogatory way or it is used as ammunition, then of course it's inappropriate. But the same could be said about anything that we say. The way that we approach someone simply by saying their name in a different tone of voice can technically be considered derogatory, depending on our facial expression and the tone that we use. So when we use low and high functioning or moderate or whatever words are out there now that seem to be changing by the hour, it's all in an effort to develop really sound clinical treatment so that we are actually informed as to the outcome, the goal, and the entire process in helping this person lead a more meaningful life. And it's incredibly difficult to do that if we refuse to acknowledge the strengths and the deficits that this person has. Not only the person themselves, but it's incredibly minimizing to the family of people who are severely impacted by autism. Because for those that are severely impacted, they need a ton more support than someone who does have a high functioning label. And a lot of people feel left behind because they are made to feel that their child is in the same wavelength as the autistic adult that has a family, has a job, opened a business, and is seemingly indistinguishable from uh, from typical or neurotypical peers, which I'm about to get into here. The reason why ABA specifically has gained such a bad rap and our reputation is tarnished in so many ways has been because we've been very sketchy in our approach to treatment. It's not like we are these clinical angels sitting amongst the gods, looking down, wondering why is this happening to us? All of us know where ABA came from and in its foundations, ABA Pers- grossly overprescribed hours specifically for kids with autism because Lovas back in the day literally stated that it takes 40 hours of therapy to make a child with autism indistinguishable from his peers. And it takes 40 hours of therapy at a minimum for a child with autism to catch up skill wise to his peers. And If we look at the motive, yeah, maybe they didn't have the intention of stripping people of their identity, and maybe they didn't truly think in their own mind that we're trying to change these people entirely. Maybe they saw the limitations that are evident when people have autism or a related diagnosis, and they wanted to make an effort to try to bridge that gap so that these people could have the same access as typical peers and that they could have the same uh, opportunities and access as anybody that does not have a diagnosis. Again, though, 40 hours, a little bit insane. 
especially when words are used, like we want them to catch up to people that are quote unquote normal. I can see where people with an autism diagnosis that see their autism as something that's unique would find that offensive. They would find it as forced compliance, which in the field is a real dirty phrase and a real dirty word. So I very much understand the need to want to be a nonconformist because if you guys know me and follow me on any platform, anytime I'm told that I cannot say something, I absolutely am going to say it. So I understand the uh, the fury and the passion in firing back towards all of these things. And so it does come from both sides. It's not only that neurodiversity has contributed to the friction between uh, clinicians and the autistic population. It's not only that ABA's past has made us indebted to the autistic population forever. We have both equally contributed to the downfalls and the mistakes and the errors that have been made along the way. But the same could be said about any single field. I mean, for all of us that have had surgery, they used to use heroin and cocaine to put people under before anesthesia was actually introduced to the, the medical society. I mean, people literally were injected with cocaine and heroin, but we have no problem going to the doctor. If we need to undergo some sort of surgery, I haven't heard anybody hold the, you used to use heroin (laughs) argument against any sort of medical staff. So this is where it gets a little bit hypocritical and confusing within our field where we're held to the mistakes that we weren't even a part of 60 years ago. I mean, I'm pretty sure for most clinicians that are between the ages of 25 and up, none of us were alive. And if we were alive, we certainly weren't behavior analysts in the time when behavior analysis was first being developed as a history or as a, as a treatment towards people with autism. So, to continue to use only the argument of, well, Skinner used gay conversion therapy, so ABA is an awful approach, or ABA used to make autistic people conform to normal people, so it's abusive. To just continue to hold everything to what it used to be 60 years ago is, it's insane, we're, I would hate to be held to mistakes I made when I was a teenager and I was immature and I had no idea what I was doing and I had no aim in my life. That feels like an attack that we're never going to be able to um, live down because we have no control over what we did before. We have no ability to change it. And so when these people within these movements continue to kind of harp on all of the mistakes that we have made, we can easily turn around and say, well, what about the mistakes that the neurodiversity movement has made? And quite honestly, there's a lot of mistakes current day versus in the past. So if we give people the dignity to evolve Everyone, regardless of what movement you are or political party you prescribe to or what your belief system is, 
people are allowed to change their mind. And one of the most concerning changes occurring now is that disabilities are actually, they're not only being normalized, they're being glamorized. I mean, TikTok is apparently just as legitimate as going to a psychologist and getting a diagnosis. And self-diagnosing is the new in thing that the young kids do because they find a lot of refuge, I guess, in groups that share a similar diagnosis. And there's almost this bonding that happens when, oh my God, you have ADHD? I have ADHD too. Oh, you're an Enneagram 9? I'm also an Enneagram 9 with you know an irrational avoidant attachment style. You could literally put any word on it and you could write an you could develop an infographic for Instagram and someone will latch onto it and right there it no longer becomes a movement it becomes groupthink and it becomes this tribalistic almost weirdly primal approach to advocacy activism and communi- uh, communicating with other people and in doing so in understanding on our end too, because this isn't, again, only the neurodiversity movement, in seeing the audience that very quickly forms when we come forward with a diagnosis, whether it be a diagnosis we've been given or one that we have adopted, that is an issue in the neurodiversity movement. On the flip side, in ABA, A lot of people, especially private equity investors, they love the fact that autism diagnoses have quadrupled just over the course of the pandemic alone because autism and ABA are incredibly lucrative. They have become this corporate business versus an actual therapy. So again, looking at how we both contribute to a problem we are not the only ones sitting back as ABA practitioners um, just pointing our fingers at the neurodiversity movement. So that's not exactly what this is about. But again, when we politicize a disability and the neurodiversity movement tends to glamorize a disability, we kind of have to ask ourselves, what is worse or what is more harmful? If we look less at who we think is a perpetrator and we think more about the victim, the true victims, and who is affected by these sort of mind frames, who is doing more harm to people? Is it the ones that minimize disability because they claim it as an identity, which it's not, by the way? Or is it the people that see therapy as a numbers game to see diagnoses as a, as a cash cow? So we have to kind of ask ourselves where and why are we both uh, fighting against each other when in a lot of ways we want the exact same thing? Not everybody wants the exact same thing. It would be impossible to get thousands of people to all agree to one ideal. But if practitioners within the ABA field want a better life for their clients and people within the neurodiversity movement want a better life for themselves and others within the neurodiversity movement, it sounds like we both want the exact same thing. But 
if you look at the arguments that are happening between ABA and neurodiversity or a non-ND affirming person and an ND affirming person, there's a lot of obsession over these trivial details, like the words that we use, the phrases that we're allowed or not allowed to say, the puzzle piece versus the infinity sign. The, the blue for autism versus the, the rainbow for neurodiversity. So we continue to push the root issue under the rug because we're unwilling to actually admit that we're in the same ballpark in a lot of ways. And it turns into a game of one-upping and wanting to win and wanting to gain some sort of status within a social hierarchy that is a movement per se. And what started again, if we think back to the 90s when the neurodiversity movement started, because they were actually facing a stigma and they were actually faced with a lot of limitations, I can guarantee you that now in 2022, stigma is not an issue that people with disabilities would actually say they face because Unless you are a literal psychopath or a cruel human being or a highly rigid prejudiced human being, for the most part, I think all of us can say that not only are there therapies on the every corner like a Starbucks available to anybody that needs it, but people generally approach disability with kindness and openness and wanting to help. And the neurodiversity movement tends to take this help as ableism because it's said the wrong way, or we're not helping enough, or we're not helping in a way that is suitable for them. And when we do ask, what is suitable for you? How can we help? Everything comes down to, well, we just need you to be quiet and let us talk with the circular argument that we've been silenced all of these years. So now is our time to speak. People with disabilities have actually really not been silenced for a very long time, especially now you have full creative license to say and do whatever you want to whoever you want. And all of these arguments, and this really drives this point home, the arguments that are made uh, in an attempt to silence people without disabilities are made by autistic people who are fully verbal, who have a family, a life, a business, um, flourishing friendships, relationships, Instagram posts. They have the cognitive and emotional ability to recruit people to think like they do. They are technically indistinguishable from their peers. But they're the ones that are also trying to speak for the people that are the most impacted by autism, a.k.a. the people that are not are nonverbal, that are unable to speak and that are looking at a life of maximal assistance and a life of always needing support across many, if not all domains of living. And. With the rise of everything becoming ableism or an example of ableism, it's very unclear how clinicians and non-clinicians, for that matter, a lot of parents are kind of put under the, the gun here, 
um, autism parents, there there's a really there's a huge difficulty in enforcing or I guess modifying our behavior to be more uh, ableism friendly. I, I don't even know what to call it because. With the hundred, literal hundred people that I asked what they think ableism is, every single answer was different. And without a solid definition of what ableism is, without a general understanding of what it looks like and doesn't look like, and with the definitions and the goalposts moving every other day, of course, anybody could say that anything is ableist. And I think that it's by design that this goalpost is moved so frequently by the movement because that way they're always ahead of it so they can never be wrong. But people that struggle to keep up with the goalposts and understand what the, the quote unquote rules are will always be in a position where they have said something wrong, they have to make an apology, and they somehow feel forever indebted to the neurodiversity movement. Um, there are a, a few parents of kids with autism that have been just obliterated on these social media platforms for referring to their kids as severely autistic or seeking refuge or even just a friend to vent to in a similar situation, and they only have been attacked by people from the movement itself. There haven't been a lot of clinicians um, or typically developing people that attack a parent of a child with a severe disability. It's only those within the movement that find it derogatory. And they find it to be something that how dare you see a disability as anything other than a gift? Um, how dare you refer to your child as having something wrong with him? One that that really wasn't said at all. It was simply a parent stating that their life is significantly harder with a child that has a severe disability versus their other children who are typically developing. That's a fact that's not made to be an abusive or offensive statement. It literally is a parent sharing their life experience with other people only to be bullied for it by these people who also claim to be autistic. So we have to wonder if the movement is devoted to advocacy for autism, but we're only including certain voices from autistic people that agree with one point of view, which is the view of the autistic person that can speak eloquently and, and verbally and recount their life experience. What about all the people that can't speak? How do you know that those nonverbal autistic people believe the same things as the leader of the neurodiversity movement? Have we asked them? Have we taken the time to ask their parents? Probably not, because another principle of the movement is that parents aren't allowed to even speak about autism. Parents are not allowed to say anything regarding their child's disability because they haven't experienced it even though they're the ones that will have to probably take care of their child for the rest of their life, uh, for a lot of people that are really severely or even moderately affected by autism, apparently that experience is not enough and it doesn't equate to 
being important or meaningful to people within the neurodiversity movement, which is incredibly painful for parents considering they're the ones that carry a burden. Yes, I said burden because it's difficult for people with children and that grow into adults that have disabilities. They have heartbreaking decisions to have to make about can we keep them home? Are we able to care for them? We're not going to live forever. What happens when we go? Who's going to take care of them then? And the movement becomes very confusing when they demand accommodations and we give accommodations. And all of a sudden we're being accused of infantilizing because that's ableistic or that's an example of ableism. So we say, okay, well, we're just going to treat you the same as everybody else then because we see you as a person just the same as everybody else, as deserving of love and dignity as everybody else. Uh, You know what? We don't like being treated by everybody else. We need more accommodations. You could see how circular this becomes and how confusing it becomes when we give them what they want. We do everything we can to show them that we respect them and their disability the same way that we would anybody with any lived experience. And it's ableism. We ask them how we can do better. And we're usually met with some demeaning or belittling, condescending remark about how we should have thought about that 50 years ago, even though a lot of us weren't alive 50 years ago, or we were infants 50 years ago. So it's designed to make sure that nobody could ever actually, um, I hate to say win because it's not a competition, but it's designed in a way where people are not able to live up to any sort of expectation because I don't think the movement actually realizes what their expectations are, honestly. Um, and to ABA practitioners that can be incredibly confusing because we are at light speed hit with a million different phrases and infographics and suggestions about, you need to listen to autistic voices. They are the only people that can inform better treatment and less abusive treatment to which to, to a degree, I actually, I actually agree with some of that. I think that because I'm someone that does not have autism and I have never gone through something remotely similar to ABA therapy, I can only imagine what it feels like to be forced to do things that are not meaningful and to be belittled and treated as if I was an infant when I was um, a teenager or an adult. So I can imagine how difficult something like that must feel. But to only listen to an autistic voice because one autistic person said that we all have to And then to just blindly conform to that, number one, we're all technically scientists. And so we're not only grounded in logic, but we have to exercise some degree of healthy skepticism. We have to exercise some degree of, "Eh, you know what, I'm, I'm not really sure that I have the full picture here. Or even, can you give me more information before I just believe you? Because the just believe them because of 
insert identity marker here, is an incredibly dangerous position to take in the sense that people who self-diagnose, who actually don't have an autism diagnosis, but want to grandstand uh, in their little social circle, circle, they're being put in charge of decisions and they're given all of this attention and uh, uh, their opinions are given more weight than, for example, people who cannot even speak. So blindly conforming to things because we feel like we have to, because if I don't listen to an autistic person, that must make me abusive. If I don't listen to someone that's autistic that tells me, Kayla, you can't use the word low functioning, does that make me an unethical clinician? There's all of these very black and white polarized forms of thinking and these sound bites that are being readily accepted by clinicians because because of the obscene behavior and because of the tantrums and the screeching and the howling that happened when we so much as ask a question. And I would say based on the hundreds of people that I asked within polls across several days was ABA clinicians are also very rigid and they're also generally, um, not as open to varying points of view as a practitioner that isn't a BCBA or an RBT or an ABA clinician in general. So we have to own up to that too. We have to understand that we're not exactly the most open profession and we struggle to understand and even welcome diverse viewpoints as well. Um, but when compared to the amount of people that clinicians believe are in the movement that are completely shut off to any sort of dialogue. It was very clear that the neurodiversity movement makes it almost impossible to engage in any sort of healthy discourse, ask any sort of questions to gain more information, or even have a simple conversation unless you are someone that readily adopts their ideals and readily folds like a lawn chair to any new rule that is imposed. And again, as clinicians, as scientists, as people who are trying to develop treatment to bring more meaning and happiness to people's lives, we can't do that if we're gullible enough to believe, oh my God, a person with autism or a disability or schizophrenia or ADHD said it, okay, I'm just going to go along with it. Imagine going to the dentist and you have a tooth, you need a root canal, right? And you tell the dentist, you know what? I'm not really comfortable with you. I, I just, because of my ADHD, I think I would rather have Kim Kardashian pull my tooth. If the dentist said, you know what? You have ADHD. That is a lived experience that I have never experienced before. I trust your input. That is terrifying. Again, people will say, Kayla, that's an extreme example. It might be an extreme example, but am I really far off here? Am I really far off when I say that we are readily and almost obsessively believing anything that is said without any question whatsoever? Because questions have been demonized. Questions and any sort of even challenge to what the status quo of the movement is 
are seen as narcissistic or tox- toxic or abusive or ableist or whatever new word that finds its way into the digital landscape that is social media. And social media is literally built to only show you content that is in line with your thinking. So while we're just folding and molding and conforming to anything that sounds good to us, we're also shutting off any opportunity to see perspectives that differ. And when, when we are met with perspectives that differ because we've never practiced engaging with them, of course, they're going to feel like an attack. Of course, they're going to feel like an identity crisis. And a lot of us have seen these sorts of, um, these situations play out to become a global crisis when really it's just, I think you were just offended by what was said that nobody ever attacked your character. There's no need for a crisis here. And That's what it can feel like to people that try to speak amongst a neurodiversity group or on the flip side, even BCBAs in a clinic setting that do not necessarily agree with this blind conformity to a trend. There's a lot of bullying towards people with diverse viewpoints. Parents of people with autism are told that they shouldn't even be a parent and that their child will won't even miss them when they die because they see them as a burden. If we also admit that we can't speak for other people, why are we assigning levels of despair and levels of distress to other people who we have never met before and we've only read a comment from them in a thread online. It's it's a continuously harmful movement in the sense that any new point of view um, is not only dismissed, but it is seen as something that could potentially endanger participants within the group endangering people using words. Imagine that. Imagine literally putting someone in survival mode because we use the word low functioning instead of an autistic person that requires a high level of support. If our entire clinical practice rests on the word that we use or the words that are acceptable, but we're still unable to recognize that people are allowed to have their own viewpoints, what good will it do to obsess over words that are used? Hmm? Does does it do any good if perspectives are still shamed, if people are still bullied, and if uh, a a disability is used as a political centerpiece versus an important piece of someone's identity, what outcome are, do we think we are reaching if we all agree to use certain words? And what's even more hypocritical about this is the autistic community says that stop trying to make us conform to things. Stop trying to make us mask our behavior to look more normal or look like other people. I agree. I could not agree more. Conformity is one of my top three lists. Uh, it's on my top three of, of things that I despise. I could not agree more that autistic people should not have to change their behavior to be more normal. 
But on that same token, don't make clinicians all conform just so that they're behavior and that their words are more suitable for the movement. You see how there's there's a huge contradiction, there's a huge hypocritical piece there where clients or only people with autism can say and do whatever they want as they're entitled to, but as soon as anybody that doesn't have autism tries to do the same, they're shamed for it, they're canceled for it, and they're made out to be this sinister, fear-mongering person. So, we're going to probably start to wrap up a little bit by looking at things that I agree with, that I disagree with, and trying to see why we can't get along and if there is any hope for these differing movements to um, gently collide in a way that we tag team in the pursuit of truth, if you will. In terms of what I agree with, I agree that the neurodiversity movement has been incredibly helpful uh, to in helping people understand the differences between how an autistic person learns versus how a neurotypical person learns. There are very obvious learning differences. And instead of imposing possibly unrealistic standards or neurotypical standards on an autistic person, we have a much firmer understanding of ways that we could help them learn while also empowering them and building confidence versus just trying to make them look like everybody else. So I think that this movement in its um, founding in the 90s was incredibly helpful in that sense. I also absolutely agree with the sense that it has forced people to look at our own practices ABA practices are still prescribing insane amount of hours. ABA is still seeing every autistic diagnosis as uh, another fat stack to add to their their never-ending wallet. So that's been very helpful. We all need an opposing viewpoint to help us see holes in our own argument and our own logic. So in that sense, the neurodiversity movement was probably one of the best things for ABA in that regard. What I don't so much agree with is that the movement puts so much emphasis on identity markers like a disability or uh, a TikTok diagnosis or whatever, or, or words that we use, that it it almost seems that the intent becomes to gain more power in numbers and foster more of this herd mob type of mentality than actually make an effort to bring people up and educate people and provide more opportunities. And I'm not a part of a neurodiversity movement, so I can't necessarily say that I have direct experience with being robbed of opportunities, but I imagine that thinking differently, acting differently, and being terrified to speak up in any way can be incredibly limiting. And the final point that I would say I disagree with on the on both fronts is the blanket conformity. So clinicians blindly conforming to any new trend that is out there, or one autistic person tells us that using the word compliance is harmful. So you know what? All BCBAs, I need you all to change all of your treatment plans. Make sure that you don't ever use that word at all. Just please don't say it. It's incredibly harmful. 
I think that's a very dangerous approach. And it's going to lead us down a very, very tricky, dangerous, inaccurate clinical road if we continue to think in such gullible ways. On the flip side, I think that we experience a lot of comments regarding how abusive ABA is and that all ABA is abuse and that all clinicians within the field of ABA are narcissistic. Again, if we only listen to one voice or we only listen to a hundred or even 500,000, do 500,000 voices speak for 7 billion? I would argue not. So when we take one voice as fact and we take dogma as fact, there is friction. There is tribalism, there is herd mentality, and we find ourselves in the position that we're in now where everybody is separated and categorized based on some sort of identity marker versus their actual character. So the implications of the friction or the great divide, if you will, are considering that autistic voices are incredibly helpful. They will teach us things that we will never understand, but they are not the only voices that we listen to. And listening only to autistic advocates because they are autistic is just as harmful as dismissing them entirely. And if the movement wants to inform people, then I would say as clinicians, it's our job to make sure that information is actually being divvied up fairly, not only to these segregated groups. And if we really believe that people with disabilities are owed the same dignity as someone without disabilities, which I 1000% believe, then treat them with dignity by questioning, challenging, or speaking to them like they are another human being, but simply staying silent because we're scared that we'll be labeled some way is only fueling this tribalism and is only contributing to the divide. It's not actually affirming any sort of challenge. It's not actually affirming whatever these people want to be affirmed. It is only serving to build entitlement and narcissism. And when those feelings are in place, uh, how are we supposed to reason with that? How are we supposed to rationally discuss any sort of any sort of desirable clinical outcome if we are so hyper focused on how our identity must be validated by other people. The issue comes down to our willingness to address our own faults, our contributions to the problems, and our own discomfort around questioning the status quo. So in closing, I think that all of us would benefit from stretching the discomfort muscle and practicing tolerating the discomfort of coming forward with an opinion because it's only when people are willing to speak up with the same bravery and courage that people are in the neurodiversity movement that any sort of collaboration, insight, and innovation will happen. And without innovation, without progress, without growth or change, there will be no movement forward. We're only going to inch ourselves backwards into our safe spaces. 
That's all I got for you guys. Stay angry. Ha ha ha.